Let's ask the Lord to help us tonight. Father, we are grateful that you are our shepherd. Uh, The fact that the Lord is our shepherd gives us such great joy in our hearts to know that we have nothing to want or need because we find all of that supplied at your hands. And so thank you for that. Lord, help us tonight as we uh, look at, once again, this wonderful topic of biblical love. Be our teacher once again, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we are looking at that glorious topic again tonight, biblical love, in preparation for this part three out of three studies of this topic. I was thinking of how Peter, the apostle Peter, places love at the very Uh, top of the pyramid, so to speak, when it comes to spiritual growth and the virtues we were developing in our lives. You find it in 2 Peter chapter 1. He, uh, you know, has mentioned being born again, uh, but then we're going to grow. And so we we apply all diligence to our faith. And in that diligence, we supply moral excellence. We grow in that. But we don't stop there in our moral excellence knowledge. We want to grow in knowledge, and there's more past that in our knowledge, learning self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. That's what he puts at the peak. And this is not saying that we, we learn each of one of these in sequential order and then they're all done. You know, we don't have to learn anything more about them. It's, a, it's an ever-growing uh, sort of circle that we go around and around on, uh, adding more of these, uh, what it means to be morally excellent and, excellent and self-control and so forth. But still, uh, love is the, the peak of that. And if we have these qualities, he says, and they're increasing, uh, in a positive way, it says that we're, you're useful. He says it in a negative way. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful. So we become useful and fruitful in the knowledge of, of Christ. So I think of that passage a lot. Just the peak that's there is love. It's not uh, you know, headed toward just more knowledge. No, it has to be expressed in love. There's a more familiar expression of the priority of love than maybe 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, It is a priority in the Christian's life, but I think a more familiar expression of the priority is actually found in the chapter we're studying, 1 Corinthians 13, but just later on. We're looking at verses 4 to 7, but verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So this is a clear biblical priority for us to grow into what it means to express love. And that makes it a very good topic for us to study here on Wednesday nights because the more we live out love, then the more we're going to be like God himself. It says that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16. The one who does not love does not know God because this is who God is. God is love. He says again in verse 16, God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So the more we live out love, the more we are like God. As we've learned the last couple of weeks, that the primary, uh, the primary New Testament term, Greek term for love, is the Greek term agape. And as I've said, this means a choice of the will. It's the choice uh, to love even the unworthy at times. It's a love that's willing to sacrifice for the object of love, that person, for the good of that person. It's a love that includes uh, intentional uh, action. All of that's in that term agape love. And so it is a a good term to describe God's love of us and our love uh, for one another. But like I said, we are specifically looking at verses 4 to 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's our passage. Uh, This section captures how this love is to be expressed, uh, especially related to relationships. And it's presented in 14 statements. There's 15 verbs, but actually 14 statements that give us the qualities of love that should continuously and habitually mark every Christian's life in every circumstance, every context. Last time we looked, and the time before all together, we've looked at eight of these qualities. So tonight we come to uh, the remaining ones, beginning with verse 
uh, number nine here in the list. These are the different characteristics of love, and they're all related. They're all connected. One flows into the next and so forth, but we're not going to review all the previous eight, but here's where we are tonight. Number nine, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Now, the word for wrong here, and this is in verse five of uh, that section, the word for wrong, the Greek term, conveys the idea of wrong in the sense of it being evil. It's uh, sinful. That's the kind of wrong that's referred to here. But in the Greek, there's the definite article that we don't get that in English. It more literally is the wrong. Love does not take into account the wrong suffered. And so with that definite article, uh, Paul is intending us to understand it's referring to the wrong that is a personal attack from someone, a personal offense to us. And I've said this before, agape love's not blind to those things. Agape love understands that wrongs are done. There is a such thing as evil. There is sin. People sin against other people, and there's pain and suffering that can be caused from all that. So we understand that. We're not naive just because we're trying to learn more about love. The question is, how should love respond to those offenses and those injuries? Our default setting is to do what this verse is prohibiting. Our default setting is to take them into account. That means to store them up, as it were. It means to keep a mental record of these hurtful experiences. I don't know who said it, somewhere I read it along the way that said that man, when it comes to this, man, every person is inherently an accountant. So we might not think that that's our strength in the physical world, the earthly world, accounting. We all have the strength in this world when it comes to storing up and remembering experiences that have been committed against us. Well, this term taken into account includes then the ideas to register something to calculate something. So by implication, it just means then to let our mind dwell on it because that's where it is. We let our minds dwell on it. We find it very easy to keep track of the wrong that's been committed. And as well, we find it natural to want to hold that wrongdoer accountable for the evil that they have done against us. Or more simply stated, we find it very natural then to be unforgiving to that person because of what's on the list in our mind. So agape love is the opposite of all that. Agape love allows no hurts, no offenses, no injuries to be embedded in our memories. For many who keep a list of wrongs that have been committed against them, the, the page gets full at some point. And the person gets angry. And for some people... The piece of paper in their mind that they write upon is very, very short. There's only room for one offense. And so it doesn't take much then for that person to be prompted to anger. So the point is that we are responsible before God as his people for what we allow to get embedded in our memories, what we choose to store up, to register, to calculate. And what will help us to remember not to do this? Well, one thing for sure is just to remember that God doesn't hold our sin against us. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Certainly he knows our sins, our wrongs, our evils. But if we're his, he is not counting those against us. So love doesn't enter offenses into the ledger, the wrongs of others into the mental ledger. It doesn't store up the items to use for revenge against that person. Agape love's always ready to forgive and forget, in this sense, any wrong done to itself. But forgetting needs to be explained, right? We literally don't, shouldn't tell people, forgive and forget, as if mentally we may have no understanding of what's been committed some offenses are pretty big. We'll remember them the rest of our lives just if you talk about technical remembering. Forgetting then doesn't mean that your brain is no longer able to call back up what happened. That's not the point. 
It means more the willingness to not treat that person according to what has happened. That's what God does. He knows everything. He remembers everything. He has all knowledge, but he does not count it against us. He does not treat us according to that. So this passage says agape love is the reason for that. Now, we have taught this before recently on a Sunday morning that practically speaking, this threefold response captures then the forgiveness, the not forgetting what it really means. So I'll just review it for you again. I gave this to you recently. When we forgive and forget, this is what we're saying, that I'm not going to continue to dwell upon it. I'm not going to let it go on and on in my mind. And when it's there, sort of, you know, feed it a little bit to dwell on it. I'm not going to do that. It's a promise I'm making to you. I'm not going to bring it up to other people for some purpose of of punishing you or embarrassing you. I'm not going to remind you of the sin. I'm not going to bring it up to others. And third, I'm not going to try to make you pay now for what you did. I'm not going to punish. I'm not going to retaliate with deeds, words, bad attitude, any of that. Agape love is like this. Agape love does not take into account the wrong and keep it on a list in the mind. Number 10 is in verse 6 now. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, this is the last statement that's in a negative form, but it actually is unique because it has more to it that's positive. There's a positive part that you see there that is a balance, but rejoices with the truth. This particular statement then has two verbs in it. That's why there's 15 verbs but only 14 statements. This goes together. Both halves of this. So let's look at the first half, though, first. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. The word for unrighteousness here includes anything at all that does not conform to what God says in his word is morally right. All forms of wickedness, all forms of moral evil, all forms of injustice in the world, any other form of sin is all included in this unrighteousness term. And we find many places in Scripture where this word is used. Just another one that comes to mind is Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what characterizes the world, unrighteousness. And sadly, there is this perverse sinful streak in human nature which actually enjoys the unrighteousness in more than one way. We can enjoy and rejoice in unrighteousness when it's our own sin, sadly, or we can gain some sort of satisfaction in other people's sin, rejoice in their unrighteousness. But that tendency to enjoy sin either way is the reverse of agape love. Agape love never takes any kind of satisfaction from sin, whether it's our own or that of somebody else. Instead, agape love is drawn toward the opposite of unrighteousness. Agape love migrates toward and rejoices this whole idea of of migrating toward what is true, what is holy, what is right. It doesn't take pleasure in in the wrong of others. It doesn't take pleasure and rejoice in the fall of others who have fallen into sin. Agape love is saddened by it. Agape love is saddened by personal sin. It's saddened by by other people's sin. It's saddened by those who fall. You find a warning from Isaiah the prophet against this tendency of, of migrating toward what is wrong, loving what is wrong, making wrong appear to be right. He says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. It's reversing what agape love migrates toward. So let's just think about it. This unrighteousness that's in the world that characterizes the world, how is unrighteousness expressed today? Many, many ways. We shouldn't rejoice in any of it, in any form of it. One that comes to mind is is the media. The media glorifies unrighteousness. The media brags on unrighteousness. The media is becoming more and more even explicit 
in its unrighteousness and what it flaunts and what it does. It's to the point where almost anything goes now. People are encouraged to just set their own standards for what's right and wrong. The media feeds all that. So what's sad is that whether it's violence or crime or immorality or slander, any of those, they end up being attractive to the natural mind and heart, and people rejoice in it. People love it. And Christians are not immune from being tempted to be entertained by it all. There's another common way that rejoicing in unrighteousness is manifested, and that's in this, this sinful sort of hope that another person will fall, that someone will, will fall into sin or even taking pleasure, like I said, in the failure of somebody. We tend to be very eager to get that kind of news that somebody has, has fallen, eager to believe what we hear in that regard. Another example of rejoicing in evil, unrighteousness, is looking down on others, sort of being prideful about ourselves and rejoicing in the fact that other people are worse sinners than we are. None of these examples is what agape love does. In that regard, we certainly don't want to be like the Pharisees. Remember Luke 18, verse 11. Christ condemned the Pharisee because they pray this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That's kind of a, a backwards way to rejoice in the unrighteousness of other people to look down upon them. Agape love says something different than that. Except for the grace of God, there I go. Another example, when somebody wrongs us, we can come to the point of rejoicing in confronting them, rejoicing seeing them being brought to joy, justice, rejoicing in church discipline in a church context, that someone gets their due. There are people who take satisfaction in that, as opposed to being grieved that we have to do it. Just one final example of rejoicing in unrighteousness, it's a very common one, and that's the people who love to participate in gossip. Gossip has a pleasure to it. There's a payoff for gossiping. People rejoice in it. Kent Hughes said this about the difference between gossip and flattery. Gossip is what you say about someone else behind their back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is what you'd say to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. That's a very interesting thought there, something worth pondering. When we gossip, we are spreading unrighteousness on the part of somebody else and Rejoicing in the opportunity to do that because we know something that other people don't know about someone's failure. We'd like to spread it. So this is a sin, this idea of rejoicing in unrighteousness and even gossip. And many people, Christians, treat gossip rather lightly, but it's a wicked sin. Unlovingly revealing the weakness and sins of others and spreading it. Hurting people instead of helping them. The heart of gossip is gloating over the sins of others. So regardless of the example, and I'm sure there's more of what it, how to rejoice in unrighteousness, agape love never makes darkness appear good. It never uh, makes uh, evil appear as something good. It doesn't rejoice over somebody else's failures. At the sight of any kind or the news of any kind of iniquity or evil, the news of somebody else's sin, love is grieved. Now, in the latter part of Romans 1, you know, Paul is describing the depth of sin in the world and the depth of sin that people are capable of, especially when God turns them over to it. He makes this statement in Romans 1, verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God, it says some other things there, but then it says, they gave approval to those who practice sin. That's a form of rejoicing in righteousness. If we rejoice in righteousness in any of those examples that I gave, we're actually doing this thing that verse 32 says that Paul condemned. We're giving hearty approval to it. This is ultimately then going to bring up the discussion of the state of our conscience. How healthy is our conscience? Our conscience can get so accustomed to unrighteousness in the world that un so accustomed to gossip, so accustomed to the media and so forth that 
it's no longer sensitive to the unrighteousness that's going on. And all the time we're supposed to be angry at unrighteousness, righteous indignation like God. Anger mixed with sorrow over the state of sin in the world. So again, I don't want to imply that agape love just glosses over the wrong that's in the world or sin, that it doesn't notice sin. It, It does. Agape love sees the things in the world the way they really are. But the Christian is one who loves in spite of faults, somebody's faults, remembering what Christ has done for us while we were yet sinners. He gave himself for us. That's the first half of the statement. The second half in that verse is it rejoices with the truth. So it it doesn't do this, but it rejoices with the truth. And even though this preposition is normally translated with, it can also be translated at. And in this verse, that's a better translation. It rejoices at the truth. It, It It doesn't rejoice at unrighteousness, any form of unrighteousness, but any form of truth it rejoices. That makes it a very interesting statement. Something else interesting, if you go back and look at the whole statement again, agape love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. You might think then that if you're going to say what it rejoices in, that it's the opposite of unrighteousness. You don't would expect it to say, but love rejoices with righteousness. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it does rejoice in righteousness. But instead, it's truth that's set over against unrighteousness here. And that happens more than once in Scripture. Here's some other examples where there, you see one is the opposite of the other. Back to Romans 1 again, men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The opposite of truth is unrighteousness. 2 Thessalonians 2.12, all will be judged who did not believe the truth. They took pleasure in unrighteousness. 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, that's another way to say unrighteousness. We lie and do not practice the truth. So truth is what Paul chose here under the inspiration of the Spirit to stand in direct contrast to unrighteousness. And the truth that we are to rejoice in, that's the opposite of unrighteousness, is not just some general facts about some things, not that kind of truth. It's the truth of God, God's truth. It's the truth that's revealed in Scripture to us. And even more specifically, it begins to narrow in. It's the focus on the truth that's bound up in the gospel. This is what is at the heart of our faith, Christianity. It is truth. Jesus said this in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. Paul said in Ephesians 4, truth is in Jesus. So agape love rejoices then in righteousness, yes. Righteousness is behavior, actions, words that are holy and right. It's holy uh, fleshed out in righteous deeds and righteous words. That is righteousness, So we do rejoice in that, but by putting it in the terms of truth, we're being told this, that agape love rejoices in behavior that reflects the gospel. Agape love rejoices in truth that of the gospel, agape love rejoices in forgiveness, for example. It will rejoice in someone forgiving someone else. It will rejoice in your own forgiveness of somebody else because that's inherent in gospel truth. Agape love rejoices in grace because that's part of the message of the gospel. Agape love rejoices in mercy, acts of kindness, and so forth. So love cannot rejoice at falsehood, false teaching, and wrong doctrine. That's part of unrighteousness. It's sad that many say that you know doctrine and truth doesn't matter. People have this perspective sometimes that it doesn't matter what people believe. That all that matters is that we just love people. But here we see agape love is connected to truth. The reality is if we truly love others, we will care whether they believe the truth or not. We don't just care that they're not living unrighteous lives and they're good citizens. We're grieved over the fact that they don't believe the truth. And if we truly love people, 
we will tell them the truth then. So on one hand, we've seen that love is kind. It is. But love never compromises truth. It's not kind to let people believe something that's wrong. It's not kind to mislead others or to let them believe falsehood. So just get back and see all this. Love, truth, righteousness, they're all inseparable. They all go together. Love never rejoices in unrighteousness or false doctrine or error. It rejoices in truth and the behavior that flows out of truth. Well, this whole section on agape love then ends with four final statements that uh, one writer said they're probably the most uh, beautiful statements in all of literature. Perhaps they are. They certainly are beautiful. We're familiar with them. The first one is this in verse 7. Love bears all things. Now, this Greek verb bear has two uh, inherent meanings to it. Uh, it, it includes the idea of covering up something, and it includes the idea of putting up with something. They're both in this term. So let's just talk about the first one. Love bears all things. We could say love covers. That's the idea. And the idea in that is hiding something. This would mean that love bears all things by covering up people's faults as opposed to exposing them. To the world. Love likes to protect people from exposure and ridicule and harm. Even when it's clear someone has sinned, love wants to deal with it biblically. Love wants to confront it biblically with the least possible harm to the guilty person. Agape love never wants to drag someone's sin, sin out into the light for the public to just have fun with it. Listen, the public can be merciless. To be tried in the public is a horrible thing. Instead, agape love wants to cover it. That's why love goes back to, go back to gossip. That's why love hates gossip. Gossip is about exposing and uncovering things. Love hates gossip, love even hates to listen to gossip because it's participating in, in an uncovering of people's sin and getting joy out of it. It's the idea expressed in 1 Peter 4.8. A different verb is used here. Peter writes, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. There's a, a need to confront sin. There's a need to deal with sin, but it's the motive is so particular, flowing out of agape love for that person. It's never to rejoice over the, the act of the confrontation and the pain it might cause to the person. Proverbs 10, 12 conveys the same idea. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Agape love doesn't rejoice in exposing it. The problem is that human Fallen human nature does, does rejoice in that. Fallen human nature gets a lot of pleasure out of exposing people's faults and failures. That's what got, makes gossip so appealing. That's why tabloids are so successful, right? Uh, the headlines on the tabloids, you know, exposing people, and they're so, they're so twisted. They're so nuanced. They're successful because human nature loves to hear about an exposure, somebody's failure. And what's sad is we have now Christian tabloids. They spin themselves and present themselves as being journalism. Watchdogs who practice so-called journalism that loves to expose what's wrong out there in a Christianity. And again, it's sad that people love it. People like true confessions. You put that in the title. Oh, that's, well, hear what that is. Exposés on somebody's failure. It's, it's depravity, man's depravity that rejoices in the sin of others. By the way, it's the same sort of pleasure. It starts early in children, doesn't it? Children love to tattle. What's tattling about? 
Well, it's exposing, exposing what their brother did, exposing what their sister said. Not that I ever see that in my grandchildren at all. The bottom line, we can measure our love by how quick we are to want to cover another person's faults. I said it once, I'll say it again, love doesn't justify sin. That's not what I'm saying. Love doesn't compromise with falsehood. Love understands there's a place for warning people. Love understands that there's a place for correcting and exhorting and rebuking and for discipline and all that. But still, love does not expose or broadcast failures and wrongs for some sort of selfish and perverted satisfaction. So that's one of the nuances, covers. But I said there's another one. In this term, bear, it has the nuance to put up with. Love puts up with people. It puts up with irritations due to particular personality traits. Love puts up with the fact that people can be ungrateful or they can be inconsiderate. Love ends up finding the ability to be compatible with all kinds of people. And the reason is love is not controlled by external things, not agape love. It's something that comes from within. So just summarize this point. Love has the persevering ability to put up with things in other people. And love seeks to cover other people's faults and failures instead of exposing them. Love bears all things. Here's another one. It's number 12 now. Love believes all things. Now you read that and it almost sounds like that it's okay then to be gullible, that Christians ought to be the most gullible people in the world. That it's okay to not be discerning and not to distinguish between error and truth. But obviously that's not the point at all. This is about... And here's how we put it sometimes. This is about giving people the benefit of the doubt. That that's our default setting. To give them the benefit of the doubt, that's the way we should be. You can say it different ways. We're not to be, as Christians, overly suspicious about everything. Overly suspicious about people or events. Overly, overly cynical about people or events. I mean, we have a a choice. We can trust people and circumstances. We can exercise trust too little or too much. One of the ways to say what's being taught here is that love errs on the side of maybe trusting too much. Here's another way to say it. We should be quick to put the best spin on things. The best spin. Fallen human nature likes to spin it another way likes to put the worst spin on things, especially when it comes to motives, and that's a big one. Love seeks to believe the best about someone's motive. We're told very clearly, by the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 5, 5, that we're not to judge motives. We leave those alone. Only God knows the motives why people do what they do. So agape love, knowing that, says, I'm just going to believe the best about their motives. So apply to somebody who wrongs you, which is what a lot of this is all about. Love chooses to believe, then, the best kind of outcome for that person who's wronged me. Love desires that that person change and come to repentance and to be restored to righteousness. So if there's any doubt about a person's guilt or about their motivation, love is going to opt for the most favorable possibility of the choices on the list. There's some good things it could be. This could be going on. This could be going on. And here's some more serious things. My default setting needs to to want the one that's the best possible one. 
We could say it this way in court language. If someone's accused of something wrong, love will consider that person innocent until proven guilty. It's, our, it's the flesh that turns that around to consider somebody guilty until they're proven innocent. So what a contrast agape love is to to the default setting of always believing the worst. But here's the balance to this. Just keep in mind that we really need to consider all the statements in this list together, all the statements about love. Every individual statement is connected to the others. I said that at the beginning. Therefore, the love that believes all things is consistent with the love that rejoices with the truth as well. We don't throw truth out the window. So love seeks to address wrongs. Love seeks to speak truth to people. Love does want to fulfill what Paul teaches us to do in Galatians 6 verse 1. Galatians 6 1, he says, If anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, doesn't mean perfect, that you understand what the sin is and you understand what they need to be, you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, which means you're going to need to speak to them truth out of love. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. If we don't seek to address wrong and just wink at it, if we accept all forms of error and falsehood, then we're not being loving, we're being selfish. We want peace, but it's not a genuine peace, it's a false peace. But as a general perspective is what this point is. Number 12, a general perspective. Love does believe all things. So we don't throw out loving the truth. We don't throw out scriptures that tell us we need to love others by confronting things. But as a general perspective, we seek to put the best spin on everything that happens. We choose to believe the best about motives until they're proven otherwise. And when someone really does fail you, then number, th- number 13 then applies. The next one, love hopes all things. Love hopes all things. I mean, we're seeking to be wise and discerning. Nevertheless, when someone disappoints us and hurts us, agape love, even though we know we need to deal with it out of love for the purpose, person, still agape love has this future focus to it, a focus on the good that can come out of it. Love does not despair. So we're honest about the reality of failure, but we're not going to take the failure as being the final thing. Our hope is always the possibility of change in that person. Our hope is always the ultimate triumph of the grace of God in that person's life. Agape love doesn't give this hope up. Another way of saying it, as long, and I do say this to people sometimes, as long as God is on the throne, As long as his grace is still operative, as long as this person is still alive, then the failure is not final. The story is not over yet. This means we're willing to give people opportunities. We call them second chances, you know, many second chances perhaps. We're willing to forgive someone in the manner Jesus taught in Matthew 18, 70 times 7. Because failure is not not final in our minds. We live with hope. And living with hope like this is an outstanding characteristic of the gospel. The true Christian with his hope in Christ cannot be a fatalist. Being a fatalist and agape love don't go together. Being a pessimist and agape love really don't go together. Now, I like the way the Apostle Paul describes how hope is connected to knowing Christ here. It's inherent in the gospel. 
in Romans 5, 1 to 5, one of my favorite passages, verse 1 especially. Therefore, having been justified by faith, there's the doctrine of justification, we have peace with God. It's not the peace of God in this verse. We have peace with God. He's no longer at enmity with us and us with him. But what's more important is not enmity of him toward us. Through Christ, that's the only way it happens, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. This is inherent in the gospel to actually live out this hope that's connected to agape love. If we really get back and understand the gospel, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So yes, if we understand the gospel, we're not going to be fatalist or pessimist or cynical and so forth. A couple more verses here. Hebrews 6, verse 19. The hope we have as an anchor of our soul, the hope both sure and steadfast. There again, just reminding you how it's connected to, the, to who we are in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3 says we're born again to it. There it is connected to saving faith and the gospel. The regeneration, we're born again into this thing called a, a living hope. And so it's not impossible for this to become our default setting then to believe all things, you know, and hope all things. This has always been true for God's people, though. Job said this, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The psalmist, my hope is in thee. My hope is from him. So even though love recognizes sin, you could put it this way, as one writer did, even though love knows the worst, it hopes for the best. Are you hoping for the best? Are you a hopeful person because you just don't know how bad things are? Oh, no, I do. We do. We know the worst. We see the worst, but we hope for the best. Because love knows that the Lord is the one who can take the worst and turn it into the best. The last one is this. Love endures all things. This is the final verb here. And you might, you might think that, well, it's the same one back in verse 4. It started off by saying love is patient. And I actually stressed at that time that the word for patient back in verse 4 was a particular term that meant long-suffering when it came to people. Patience in respect to a person. This verb is a different verb. Love is patient with all things, you could say. Love is long-suffering with all things, but it's a different verb. Here is patience or bearing up in respect to circumstances and things that happen. Two different ones. So the book ends. We're long-suffering when it comes to people, and we're long-suffering when it comes to circumstances. If we understand agape love. Just a little bit more about this particular verb. It was actually a military term of the day. They would use this to describe uh, the military, the army, holding their position, not giving up, no matter the cost, no matter uh, you know, the, the amount of suffering that was involved. They would not give up their position. They would use it to talk about a soldier as well, just an individual soldier in a battle who, who individually is holding their place. They're not running. They're staying in place. That's the word. So in the same way, love, agape love, is what helps someone stay in their place and endure the grievances that come up in life, minor grievances even, or even more severe suffering, loss, loneliness, persecution. We've dug in our trench and we're not, we're not moving backwards. This verb then is denoting something very intentional. It's an active choice that the person makes. It's not the same thing as just passively just giving into the circumstances. I have no choice. 
No, this is actively choosing, I'm holding my ground. So it's not the spirit of defeatism. It's actively pressing onward. That's what agape love does. Even when being confronted with the most serious kinds of opposition. Now what helps, again, is a, is a future sort of look. Agape love is not focusing just on the present situation. In fact, here it's helpful to remember that Scripture even teaches that in the future, Jesus is actually going to come and right all the wrongs when he returns. And so agape love is content that there is coming a time when all wrongs will be righted. And Paul, when we were studying 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul commented in a favorable way about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, he complimented them because they were manifesting this steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that means his return. They had the eyes of their heart focused on that. That helped them endure the persecution they were suffering. Other verses, James 5, 7 and 8, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Okay? How long does agape love endure and hold the position? Until the coming of the Lord. The farmer, he gives an example, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains, and then it, the crop comes. In that way, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Apply that to something that you're going through, obviously. You know, something in a, in a family situation, somebody you're concerned about and burdened about. Agape love is steadfast here. It's going to keep looking forward and in hope, keep believing. It's going to keep enduring. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, this is after Paul has mentioned our inheritance. We're born again to a living hope and we have this inheritance for us in heaven. Then he writes this in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice in all that, all that great gospel stuff. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, and I've said this before about this verse, God is the one that determines if it's necessary. You don't. Uh, you don't go to God and say, I, I think I'm at a place in my life where I need to be distressed with some trials, Lord. Please do that for me. And we don't define what a little while is either. He gets to define that one. You don't say, I, I, I think... Maybe today, yeah, distress me you know, some today. I think it'll be okay. I don't have anything else going on. He does it so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the, honor at the revelation of Christ. In other words, it, 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 it's what he uses to encourage our faith and love that will help us endure. So agape love looks toward the future. It looks toward the future for help and enduring, but it's willing to wait now. Willing to wait for the Lord to do whatever the Lord has decreed to be best in the situation. So let's just take those last four statements since they're said to be some of those beautiful statements in literature, and I, I don't doubt that. Here, here they are all together as and I got this from some source I read, just the way it's worded. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. <clears throat> it hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would give up. I mean, what an incredible way to live. In fact, it's so incredible, it's not human. It's so incredible, none of us can do it on our own. This takes divine enablement. Everything on the list there, maybe summarized in these four statements, takes divine help, and it is the help that God delights in giving to his people. And we experience this help when we ponder again 
just how Christ loves us in all the ways that are found in this list. All 14 ways are the ways Christ loves his people. He's our example in this. It helps us to think about that. So regardless of the trial we're going through, regardless of what others do to us, regardless of the difficulty of the situation that we're in with some person, maybe someone we're burdened about, regardless of how impossible it might seem for change to happen, regardless of the various insults that we can come our way, regardless of the conflicts and we face or the persecution we face, agape love keeps going. It keeps doing what is right in your marriage, in your family, at work, because love is content just knowing that God is using everything that happens, every experience to make us more like his son, which is what Romans 8, 28 and 29 say. I'm going to read those four again. Love bears what otherwise is unbearable. It believes what otherwise is unbelievable. It hopes in what otherwise is hopeless. And it endures when anything less than love would give up. I wish I could remember who said that. Well, what a list. Uh, It's a pretty incredible standard. I think for many This passage on love, the whole thing, is nothing more than literature. Certainly for unbelievers, it's just, they're just wonderful sentimental expressions. They've heard it quoted in weddings, seen it on wall hangings, plaques. Unbelievers even enjoy this passage for its literary beauty. And as I said, it certainly is beautiful. But that's not what we're to do with it, okay? We're supposed to resist hearing this section that way just as beautiful literature. The point of this Bible study is the point of every Bible study, and that's to end up examining ourselves to see where we are for the purpose of growing. So we can do what Peter said, you know, in all diligence, adding to our faith the moral excellence and the self-control and the virtue and the knowledge, but most of all, love. And as we grow in all these areas that are touched on in 1 Corinthians 13, then more and more we can put our own names in the list, which is a worthy goal, in place of the word love each time. I said you could put Jesus' name there. Jesus is patient. Our desire is that God would so enable us that we could put our names in there. Put your name is patient, is kind, 